There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Miner. Hello, folks. Help us move from awareness to action this week is Mr. Rick Smith, CEO of Axon, formerly Taser, and author of the upcoming book, The End of Killing. Welcome, Rick. Hey, it's great to be here. Excited to have you on. Centauri, the obvious question here is, have you ever been tased? Oh, is that... Wow, because I thought you were going to ask if I've ever killed someone. Oh. And I was like, this is not the outlet to ask someone that. <laughs> but the answer is no to both. I have okay. not been tased and I have not killed anyone. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Rick, as as you could tell, Centauri and I are good friends and we like to have a good time. But very excited to have you on. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what, what motivated you to write the book. Yeah, it actually started, I was at a dinner uh, with a guy named David Kidder, who's an author himself. And anyway, this is one of those where there was sort of these icebreakers. And he asked this question that apparently Peter Thiel, the venture capitalist, asks regularly, which is, what is the one thing that you believe that no one else believes? And when it came around to me, I said, you know, I believe we're getting to the end of killing and to the end of warfare. And everybody looked at me like I had lost my mind. Uh, and then I started to explain it. And once you started dig into it a little bit, people were like, huh, that's not as crazy as it sounds at first. And um, obviously this ties into my professional life and what I do at work and, and, and what I've spent my life trying to do. Uh, and I was really intrigued both at the initial, like just incredulous reaction people had, but then how pretty smart people could come around to the idea once you started to dig in and, and that's when I got the idea that hey this would be a great topic for a book yeah I think that that makes a lot of sense and that's interesting that is an excellent question so I, I, I like that a lot well obviously your work with taser and now axon over the past 25 years or so has been obviously has 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 shaped and informed this whole line of thought of, of 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 protecting life but what is what is really the 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 premise of the thesis yeah so number one what i wanted to avoid was it'd be easy for a book like this to turn into like a marketing brochure mm. like hey come and buy my stuff and i absolutely wanted to avoid that because this is obviously a much bigger topic than me or one company, it's really challenging the idea that killing people should be okay. And when I first started this project, you know, I thought I was sort of swimming against the tide of history and human nature because people watch TV and they read the news and they conclude that, you know, oh, the world is like more dangerous than it's ever been. But in fact, they couldn't, that, they couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, and as I was researching for the book, uh, there's a guy named Steven Pinker who is a famous psychologist uh, at Harvard who's, who wrote a book called uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature. And he basically documents that over the past 500 years or so, um, the rate of violence in human society has dropped by a factor of about 500. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's pretty dramatic. In fact, you know, people think of like medieval Europe that, you know, oh, knights and damsels and the honor code and all that, and they romanticize it. Uh, 
but in fact, the honor code of medieval Europe was if you if you insult me, I kill you. If you want to take my stuff, you kill me. If I think you might kill me, I'm going to kill you. I mean, just extreme violence. So you had a 500-fold higher chance of being killed in medieval Europe than you do today. It's just they didn't have social media, so you didn't see it, you know, blasted in front of your face constantly. You know, so now anytime there's a school shooting, you know, somewhere in Ohio, it feels very personal, even though I live in Arizona, because it, it's all over my TV feed and my news feed. So once I sort of realized that, in fact, and it's not just murders, wars are also down dramatically from where they've been historically, that, in fact, there is this trend where killing used to be not just normal, but it was glorified, right? Like the jobs of kings and, and world leaders was almost to go out and kill on behalf of the country's honor. And now we don't accept that anymore. We only accept killing in cases where there's no other alternative, like when police use lethal force. Um, or if we do go to war, it's because there's some threat that we don't have another means to deal with that threat. And so the idea now is we've accepted as, as the people of the world have generally accepted killing is no longer glorious. It's no longer something we should be doing. Uh, and in fact, um, the only time we kill now is when we don't have the right technology to do whatever it is we need to do without killing somebody. And that's the thesis of this book, that we shouldn't accept that we should just be killing people. We should be looking for what are the ways that we can avoid killing people or how can we stop a threat or even for military purposes, I've had really interesting conversations because the military has been the hardest sort of intellectual nut to crack because many people think the military's job is to kill. But it turns out it's not. It's to protect the national interest. And when we send our soldiers abroad and the only tools they have kill people, they can't deal with threats like a young child walking up carrying a box to a checkpoint. That's been a tactic our enemies have used where that child might be carrying explosives, right? And you kill that person, you've destroyed that soldier's psyche, they're going to have horrible mental problems for their life, and you've incited, you've basically undermined the mission at home, you've incited resistance, and it becomes a recruiting tool against us abroad. So uh, even in military environments, I've found a lot of resonance to this idea that we need to find ways to do the jobs without killing people. And uh, it, it's starting to catch fire, and I haven't even released the book yet, but in talking with... Uh, People like even, you know, Stan McChrystal, who, who led a large part of the surge uh, in Iraq and counterinsurgency, uh, this has really resonated. Rick, thanks for, for sharing what you, what you described. I have, an interest, I have a question that I think I kind of know the answer to, but I want you to talk a little bit more about what are the headwinds when releasing this book. So you obviously have a, a military complex that is based and rooted in the idea of killing to get to your ultimate um, your ultimate goal. So besides the military, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing as you release this? Or are there not, or more, more people often than not really b rallying around your research and this narrative? You know, it, it, you find resistance from just about every quarter. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, for example, one of the cases I talk about in the book has to do with um, peace protesters and non-government organizations who you generally think of like, these are organizations that would want to push us to a world with less killing. But in fact, what happens a lot of times is these protest organizations or activist organizations begin to frame their mission more about what they're against than what they're for. And let me give you a specific example. About 10 years ago, the US military developed a system called the active denial system. It was built by Raytheon, the defense contractor. 
And basically, this was a system that could project a ray of energy that acted a lot like pepper spray. So you could, you could point this ray at a crowd 500 meters away, and it would heat up the surface of their skin so it hurts. Again, much like pepper spray, so you could clear a crowd out. Now, in modern warfare, where you have insurgents and people hiding in crowds of women and children, or like the scenario of Black Hawk Down, where we lost soldiers because the help couldn't get there, the streets were clogged with civilians blocking them, this would be a tool that undoubtedly could save lives. But what's really interesting is the most vehement opposition against the active denial system came from anti-war activists who I think unfortunately became anti-military activists. So they came out and they protested this thing saying, this is terrible. You know, the military is developing this death ray and they're going to deploy it on women and children. And it became so controversial that in fact, the military itself decided to never deploy this system in the field. Hmm. Now think about that. Now they tested this system on over 15,000 U.S. volunteers, U.S. citizens and war fighters. I've been hit with it. It has an amazing safety profile. And for an organization like the military, that everything they have kills people, bombs, bullets, artillery, tanks, M-16s. I mean, just go on and on. And to me, this was insane that when we have an opportunity for the military to say, hey, we're going to try a different approach that doesn't rely on killing people, you would think that activists would come out and cheer the military for moving this direction. And in fact, because partially because it's new and it would grab headlines to come out against it and characterize this as some evil act of the military, that's where the, that's where the activist community went. And as a result, here we are 10 years later, and the military still only has tools that kill people, and they didn't deploy one that could have gone in a different direction. And so that's the sort of debate I want to open up and engage with activist groups and others to say, hey, look, we need to all, like, agree that ending the practice of people killing each other is a worthy goal and it's one that we should we should pursue and that means we're gonna have to try new things and while at first it might seem a little bit creepy to have a pain ray gun that you could the military could use but we we can't think about that just in the abstract sure a pain ray gun sounds a little creepy but it's nowhere near as bad look if it's my family that's in some town where there's a military operation bring the pain ray gun all day long before you start dropping 500 pound bombs and artillery shells on us. And I think that's the context that has been missed historically. And Rick, you outline all of that in the, the book, right? Yeah, so there's uh, basically, we sort of have five target goals in the book. One is to uh, sort of change the debate about police technology, uh, you know, things, and that, that appeals very personally to me where things like the taser that we still have some agencies not deploying it because of the political risks, when in fact, if a cop doesn't have a taser, all they have is a gun. So one is police. The second is the military, as I talked about. The third is actually inviting the activist community to become constructively engaged on these topics and, and actually help us move the ball down the field uh, rather than just becoming an activist against everything the military and police do. Let's shape them into a new direction rather than just sort of you know, fighting against uh, any change. And then the, the last major one is uh, the tech industry. Um, there's a bit of a trend happening in this country where a lot of the major tech companies are simply refusing to work with law enforcement and military. Perhaps the simplest example is Google uh, refusing to let the government 
or the U.S. Department of Defense use any of their artificial intelligence tools. Now, that's I, I get it why they say, look, we don't want to be involved in the war fighting business, but these are big problems in the world and they don't go away because you ignore them. What if those AI tools could help the U.S. military avoid civilian casualties, right? I mean, you can think of lots of ways that they could use that technology to do their job and save lives. Uh, and I think Jeff Bezos actually said it best, where he basically came out and said, look, if the best and brightest companies in the U.S. aren't going to help our military, this country will be in trouble. Because you know in China and in Russia, the best and brightest are working on military projects. And it is not in the interest of the safety and security of the world to have our military start to fall technologically behind uh, what's happening in other countries. So I think it's uh, it, it might be a good PR move for some of these companies to say they're not going to work with the police and military. But I would challenge them to say, if you want the world to be a better place, you have to engage on these tough issues. You can't just walk away from them. Got it. I think that's all, that's all really, really good stuff. So it's a matter of shifting thinking. I don't really like the term paradigm shift, but essentially that's that that's one of the things you're hoping to accomplish and get everybody on the common ground of can we all agree that ending killing would be a good thing? And because I guess if, if we can't all agree to that, then it's sort of a non-starter. Yep. I mean, there's lots of ways that uh, you know, th- this is hard stuff. I mean, when you introduce new technology, it tends to get uh, almost an unfair amount of scrutiny. Let me give you one example. Uh, I'm sure both of you heard about the person who was killed by a self-driving Uber a little over a year ago, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody around the world saw it. It was newspaper headlines around the world. What people don't realize is since that, that's probably the most famous traffic accident I think any of us have heard of in the past, certainly in the past year, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Since that happened, over 1 million people have died in just regular run-of-the-mill car accidents. Right. So the risk is that we say, well, you know, we're not going to deploy some of these autonomous driving capabilities because one person got killed, and we're just going to keep doing what we're doing that kills a million people a year. So now I think, you know, eventually that's, uh, we overcome those things, but it, it can really slow down progress. And in some cases, it actually does kill progress. I think the good example being the military has effectively almost shut down its non-lethal weapons research because of what happened. Just the, the it, They don't get any points for doing it. And, and if you're a political leader high up in the Department of Defense, like why would you approve some new weapon system that's only going to end up with a big media uh, you know, outlash against you? So we need to sort of like all sort of calm down. And when we think about new technologies, particularly ones that are used in high risk situations, we need to compare them against the world we live in, not against perfection. Because if we wait for perfection, you know, then effectively you're just locking in the status quo. There's nothing in, in life is perfect. But like automotive airbags save a hell of a lot of lives, but they don't save everybody in car crashes. And sometimes the airbag actually kills someone, but on balance, it's been a huge improvement in safety. And that's the sort of thinking I'm trying to bring to this topic. Do not let perfect be the enemy of the good. I, I appreciate that very much. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so of, 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 of the five target areas, uh, the police, military, technology, activists, um, missing from that was, was, was private citizens. Is that, to a degree, kind of a lost cause? or? 
No, no. Uh, actually, we I do have a, a couple chapters on private citizens and on school safety because um, those are also pretty uh, interesting and controversial areas. Uh, so, look, I'm uncomfortable with firearms. I bought my dad a gun for his birthday one year. Uh, however, it is a terrible situation for any person to be in to be holding a gun in your hand and pointing it at another human being and have to make a life or death decision to protect yourself. I think a, a rational person, if you could get Captain Kirk's Star Trek phaser, where it was more effective than a gun and it didn't kill anybody, pretty much everybody would choose the weapon that doesn't kill, except unless For you're sure. a psychopath. I mean, I've had this conversation <laughs> with police chiefs, and they'll tell you, like, if they could rely on their non-lethal weapons to be more effective or at least as effective as their guns, they would never kill anybody anymore. Uh, and I think that also applies in the private sector, that, you know, over time, as non-lethal weapons get better, then, you know, lethal weapons should be relegated to hunting and, and target shooting, but no longer be something that you ever have to deploy on another person. Rick, so and those... And those conversations, sure. can you help us define what effective means from those entities? So what do they mean by if they were as effect effective as those lethal weapons? Yep. And so this is one where, uh, you know, my, my day job comes in really handy because we make the taser weapon. That is the most effective non-lethal weapon in the world today. But I can tell you it's not good enough. Um, and what I mean by that is in a laboratory condition, if we hook a taser up to a volunteer in hundred percent of the time, we can have them down and incapacitated faster than a bullet. We can do it in a tenth of a second. And actually, it turns out bullet strikes, from what you see on the movies versus what happens in reality, they're actually not that immediate. Like if you shoot somebody in the abdomen or the chest, FBI statistics show, even if you get a kill shot where you shot somebody right in the heart, they can continue to fire back at you for 14 seconds because you actually have to wait for the brain to run out of oxygen. When people are in the fight or flight scenario, wow. you know, you see these scenarios in war, right? Where people get their legs blown off, but they're able to still function because of the adrenaline rush. Um, but the, the challenge, so things like electricity can actually be more immediately effective in many cases than a bullet. The challenge is that today a taser weapon only has one or two shots. You know, a Glock handgun has 17 shots. And you can carry another 34 rounds in spare magazines. And it's got an unlimited range. And it penetrates through pretty much everything except bulletproof armor. Whereas taser weapons, they penetrate, penetrate through most clothing, but not all clothing. And so the, the result is cops will they'll go to something like a taser, non-lethal weapon, when they're in a situation where their life is not at immediate risk. But if their life is at immediate risk, they're going to go to the gun because it's just more reliable today. Now, guns have had, firearms have had a, you know, 500-year head start on us. So, you know, it's taken us some time to catch up. But the way we measure and we think about effectiveness is we're going to have to develop technology that gets through the clothing every single time with many more than two shots. We're not sure quite how many is the right answer to get to. Um, and maybe some computer-assisted targeting to help you get both of the projectiles on the subject. But if we can get to the point where over the course of a large data set, let's say a 1,000 uses of a firearm compared to a 1,000 uses of an advanced non-lethal weapon, if we can actually show that these next-generation future non-lethal weapons are actually more reliable 
at putting the threat down on the ground and faster than doing it with a bullet, then that will be the moment in time. Once we can prove to the end user, you don't use this just because you're being kind to the person on the other end. They'll choose to use this when they know and the data supports that it actually will be a more effective mechanism of self-protection because it does the job better. That's where we've got to get. Excellent. So I imagine that that you're going to be, for lack of a better term, making the rounds and giving interviews and talking to a bunch of a bunch of different outlets. Do you have other designs on or or other thoughts on how you can better advance uh, this your um, end goal of ending killing? Well, I'm uh, I'm proud to say this is actually my first podcast interview on the topic Excellent. so i'm pretty excited to be starting with <laughs> love that. Team in Arizona. Love that. <laughs> uh, and then yeah uh you know we're just really starting to spin up the uh uh the launch plan uh to start setting up you know interviews and starting conversations and uh we've got we'll be setting up on hashtag at hashtag end of killing uh on twitter to start a public conversation um one of the things actually I put in the intro of the book that I think is pretty important, I didn't write this as the CEO of Axon. I wrote this in my individual capacity because I wanted to take on some pretty controversial stuff. And obviously, as the CEO of a public company, you know that company has really rigorous risk management uh, sorts of uh, policies, et cetera. And I'll give you one example. One of the things I challenge in the book is the war on drugs. Um, as I've researched this, uh, and gotten into the data, it's become pretty clear to me that the the current American policy of the war on drugs has some major downsides. First, it's not very effective. Over the past 30 years, we've dramatically decreased tobacco use without sending people to jail and without creating criminal black markets. So we should be doing more of that, whereas the criminalization model that we've applied in the war on drugs actually has not decreased drug usage. Drug usage has generally continued flat or even gone up, and yet we've incarcerated uh, about 1% of the population. We have the largest prison population on earth, and as a side uh, effect of all this, we've basically created a, an ecosystem where violence and killing is a logical choice. If you're a drug dealer, you can't call the police to enforce your contracts, right? So you end up in a situation where somewhere between 10 and 50% of homicides in America are related one way or another to the drug trade. So I think we need to ask ourselves the question. We've been at this since Richard Nixon declared the war on drugs in 1971. I was one year old. If it's not working very well, if it's causing us to incarcerate hundreds of thousands of people, and if it's also instigating violence in our inner cities, we should really ask ourselves, should we be looking at another way, especially when we've been so effective at reducing tobacco use? I think, you know, it, it, unfortunately, solutionism like this, we're actually looking to solve problems, doesn't seem to resonate in the political environment today where people want to yell at each other right. uh, about, you know, these extreme positions uh, sort of based on the past. Um, but you, you can imagine, like, frankly, my, my police customers, generally aren't going to love the idea of uh, ending the war on drugs because it's one of the tools that helps them identify and sweep bad guys up off the street. But I felt a need to bring this one up because I think if you take the long view, 
yeah, you know, drug uh, drug laws do enable them to get probable cause to go after folks who might be bad actors. But I would actually point out, I actually think we have far more violent criminals because of the illicit drug trade. We're manufacturing them in our society. So it'd be much better, let's stop manufacturing homicidal violent criminals by removing the ecosystem that supports them rather than manufacturing violent people so that we can arrest them and throw them in jail. Wow, right. That's, wow, okay. Excellent. So, Rick, one of the questions we love asking all of our guests are, what are the top three things that you've learned over the past three years? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, <laughs> I, I might go slightly longer than three years on yeah. this first one, and, uh, but I think it's an important one. One major thing I've learned has been that changing a company is way harder than building one. And I mean like 10 times harder. So I started Taser in a garage, you know, in 1993. And building it, you have a canvas, you have this clean sheet of what you're going to do, how you build your culture, et cetera. Starting in 2008, we got into the body camera and the software business. And today, actually the software business is the largest part of our company. Transitioning a weapons company into an integrated hardware software company was insanely hard. I just totally underestimated how much internal resistance you would run into because it would require, it basically requires you to change everything you know about your job. And every one of your employees has to learn new skills. You have to unlearn the way you used to do things. Hmm. And as a result, like the majority of the management team is no longer here. We had to, you know, we had to change out and get new skills and new people and, just wow. overcome massive internal resistance. So I would say if I had to do it again, I would think really hard about it may have made more sense to do body cameras and software in a new company rather than try to change the old one. Uh-huh. Now that we're through it, I, actually we're in a great spot where actually our weapons are becoming more connected devices and there's a lot of software even in that part of the business, but the transition was just so much harder than I ever thought it would be. Got it. Uh, the other two, uh, one, uh, I actually learned that I, I think I'm more effective as a CEO when I'm working remote, which was an interesting one. A couple of years oh, ago, wow. I, I, I basically decided to move to Europe. Uh, I, it was something I wanted to do while my kids were young enough. Um, and uh, I'd gone to school in Europe uh, and I was around the 20, around the 22 year mark in my career. So I thought of it as a semi sabbatical. But what I learned was when I was remote, I actually had a lot more time to focus on the big picture things that matter because I wasn't getting sucked into all the day-to-day meetings and minutia of being in the office. Just when you're in the office, like you end up going to a bunch of meetings that frankly you don't really need to go to. Right. Um, So that was really interesting to me. I thought I was going to take a sabbatical when I came back. I was like, man, I actually need to be that guy. Because when I was on the road, I I was engaging on the important stuff and I was spending a lot more time on strategic issues and a lot less time on the minutia. Nice. And then the final thing I learned is writing a book is a giant pain. (laughs) 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 There certainly was some enjoyment to the process, but what I found, if you have a day job, like I'm, you know, is the CEO of a company, my schedule, there's, there's never enough time in the day to do all the work. And what I found was, the book ended up then being the thing that was always in the back of my mind, stressing me out 
like when I was on vacations or weekends or trying to do stuff with the family and kids, I'd be torn. Hey, you know, should I be taking this time to go work on the book? Uh, and uh, my family got pretty, uh, you know, they weren't big fans of the process because it ended up eating much more into my personal time than into my professional time. So I'm, I'm glad to have it done now. And love this. Excellent. Rick, and then Rick, the, uh, I, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, Rick, um, one of the things that you you bubbled up was uh, remote working. I'll send you this article that was in Inc. like on Friday that we're saying uh, remote workers are now outperforming office workers. And it talks a lot about what you mentioned in here. So I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that as well. Oh, super interesting. Yeah, please do send me that. Excellent. So, Rick, the second question we ask everybody, if you could make one plea knowing that the entire world would hear it, what would that plea be? You know, I think the plea would be if we could all try to focus on solutions rather than finding ways to get angry at each other. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the state of affairs, particularly in the United States right now, where there's this there's this bubbling anger across the board. Uh, you know, my friends that are very politically active on the progressive left are just seething with anger about, you know, all these issues uh, against people on the political right. And I've got, you know, you know, like my dad and, and many others that are you know, pretty strong views on the political right. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, it's like cliche now. You can't even talk about these issues at the Thanksgiving uh, dinner table because there's just so much anger and emotion. And, and ultimately that's part of what I'm trying to address in the book as well. It's like, look, we're not going to get anywhere by people calling names at police officers and saying that cops are just racist and they're thugs. Like, what does that accomplish? Like, all it, it doesn't accomplish anything. It just, uh, frankly, it, 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 to me, it's offensive prejudice against the million people who have chosen to become police officers. And I don't know how, but to me, it's a real catch-22. So wait a minute. You want to come out against being prejudiced and biased, and yet you're immediately expressing these prejudicial bias views against an entire uh, category of, of people who have chosen a job in public service. So I think, you know, I want to encourage people to say, hey, let's, let's stop name calling each other and let's start it really focusing on what are the solutions to these problems that don't rely on just going back to the entrenched arguments of the past. Like, I think, you know, on gun control or abortion or, you know, any of these really divisive issues, yelling at each other is not going to change people's minds. But, you know, in each of these areas, there's technology is just shifting so fast across so many elements of society. You know, we should be taking a hard look at are there new approaches that are less divisive? And even if we're going to be, you know, where we don't agree, I'd sure love to see just a higher degree of civility. Uh, and, and less of this balkanization that's, that's happening. I think that that's excellent advice right there. So thank you. Well, Rick, where where will people be able to get a copy of the book? Uh, it's already available for pre-order uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Um, I've got a website at endofkilling.com uh, so people can go there to learn a little bit more. Uh, and it'll be out in bookstores. Uh, it'll be in, uh, you know, Hudson's at the airports, um, in a pretty prominent, uh, launch position, uh, starting in, uh, June. 
Uh, and again, May 21st is the day that it will be publicly available, but you can pre-order it on the major sites already. Awesome. Very exciting. Centauri, what else? Oh, great. Answered all my questions. This is really fascinating work. Can't wait to get a copy of the book. Thanks for being here, Rick. All right. Well, thanks. You know, uh, like I said, great to start with the hometown team. It's my first interview <laughs> on it, and I'm really excited and a little bit nervous. You know, this is uh, I'm putting some ideas out there that aren't, you know, safe, uh, <laughs> safe bets. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, I might be dead wrong on some of this stuff. So um, I wanted to put out some of the crazy ideas because I found a lot, you know, when we're developing products or we're trying to invent new things, some of the crazy ideas that at first you want to go, no, 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 that's a bad idea. Those turn out to be the game changers. And so in the book, you know, I put it right up front. I said, look, I'm putting some crazy ideas out there. I'm sure some of these ideas are bad. And I just haven't seen, you know, the holes in it yet. So I'm inviting people to, hey, read this, get engaged, you know, engage with me on Twitter or other platforms. You know, let's try not to get into too much name calling because uh, there are, you know, a lot of emotions in some of these issues. But help me think this through because there's got to be better ways than just continuing to kill each other like we have for the past thousands of years. Well, I love it. I, I appreciate appreciate the time. I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, I appreciate you putting the time in and, and, and putting your thoughts out there. And I certainly wish you luck. So thank you again, sir. Awesome. All right. Thanks guys. All right. Then always thanks as always for listening and remember, keep questioning because the struggle is real. On behalf of Centauri and I, thanks as always for listening. Please subscribe to the show, leave us a review and feel free to share the show on social media. Thanks a lot.